0: Hi, I'm Jesse, and you're listening to Red Cloaks Radio, where we are counting down to see if the Massachusetts legislature will or will not pass the ROE Act. We have exciting guests today to talk about government transparency. Joining me is my co host. Hi, my name is Martha. I'm from the Boston Red Cloaks. And also, Linda Vieira from Indivisible Acton. And we're so excited to have Erica Eiderhoven with us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Erica is a candidate for state representative for the twenty-seventh Middlesex District, which is represents Somerville. I met Erica when she spoke at an indivisible act in general meeting. I was very impressed with her knowledge of how things work or don't work at the Massachusetts State House. Erica, we're really curious because we're gonna get into talking about government transparency, but before we get there, you've stepped up to run and What's it like from your corner of the woods?
1: Yeah, I mean it's uh, you know it's wild because we're running in the midst of a, a COVID nineteen global pandemic. Um, so you know I've I've worked on many campaigns before, but of course this is uh, different partly because I'm a candidate, but also partly because you know everything has to be done uh, remotely. And I'll just say you know one I think the biggest challenge has been. Um, you know, campaign work as well as advocacy work such as what you all are doing is it, not easy, right? We don't do it because it's easy. We do it because we need it. There's a need for it and our communities need it. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting because with campaigns, right, it's like you're trying to bring people together uh, around work that is not easy inherently. Um, however, you know, kind of the, the what is so rewarding about this work is the community that you build around. it. And I think I've seen that with Indivisible Acton, with the Boston Red Cloaks, as well as, you know, with my campaign. Um, and so the the challenge, I think, right now is building that community remotely and over Zoom and, and sort of building that culture in any case. And I think that that's been sort of our, our biggest um, challenge, but also kind of silver lining because we've been able to connect with people in ways that we, you know, I don't think we would have thought to try to connect with people, um, you know, digitally over Zoom with live streams, all the kind of different tools out there. So, but yeah, I know it's, it's been a pretty exciting journey, um, you know, running for office amidst this very,
0: historically significant time now with this with all this technology how do you think your constituents have been receptive Mm -hmm.
1: yeah i mean i think the biggest challenge is getting you know to reaching constituents and i think um You know, we largely now phone bank, so we've really been just doing a ton of phone banking um, rather than knocking on doors. Um, And then I think the other piece that's been kind of cool is that, you know, people do spend a lot more time online now. So, you know, typically with a small campaign, you know, it's good to have a Facebook page, but don't make it the focus. The focus is getting in front of voters. And that's still the case, of course. But I think what's been kind of cool is, you know, I do these like weekly state house updates to share with people like, here's what they voted on this week. This is what the election bill looks like. What is that housing uh, foreclosures and, and, um, you know, evictions moratorium? What does that mean? Is that a good bill? Is it a bad bill? And having that kind of analysis to share with people is something I don't think I would have, you know, been able to make the time for had it been a typical campaign. And I think the fact that, you know, we have those resources out there for people to learn and understand how their state government is working has been a pretty uh, rewarding experience. So, yeah.
0: Connecting to the state house activity is challenging, even when yeah. you want to know what's going on. Mm-hmm. So for example, with the Roe Act, it there was a hearing last June mm-hmm. and it's with the joint committee on the judiciary. And there's been just no information at all. It's just yeah. really silent. So mm-hmm. for the red cloaks, it's meant going to the state house in person up through February. We were still going regularly um, and either visiting silently or in some cases speaking with some legislators or answering questions. And Really, even when you go in person, you have no idea what's happening once it's in a committee. Have you noticed that. Yeah,
1: a 100% the case. Yeah, I mean, it's really, um, it's interesting because with transparency, you know, we say we're, you know, I co founded this organization called act on mass, which is Focused on transparency, specifically at the State House in Massachusetts. um, and specifically around progressive issues. So the Roe Act is one of our, you know, key bills that we really uh, push and, and work with advocates on and it's Wild, because it really is um, a system that is designed to keep people out because we we say we talk about transparency because that 's sort of the higher level right that 's the thing you can see right it 's very easy to see rule differences right it 's easy to identify that it 's easy to kind of factually say Massachusetts is the least transparent legislature, but under that kind of veneer the top level of transparency is a culture and a a system of working right a a public institution that has been so effective at keeping people out that that is is what transparency actually means and so I always want to try to like take people to that other level because it is about um, voice and about agency it's about voice for women for for people of color for immigrants for you know young people I mean that that is I mean that that's you know just take the row act as one example right the fact that our voices don't matter, is what, what that building has sort of, and not the building, but the institution, right, has really been effective at, at doing. Um, and I think that com- manifests itself in many ways, right? To your point, you know, you get three minutes to speak at a committee hearing, if that. Sometimes they cut it down because they're running out of time. Um, and that happens once every two years, right? Um, and then after that, it's like a, a who's who, a whack-a-mole of like, well, where is this bill? And who's responsible? And who's doing what, right? It's like really been this like absorptive, um, it it's, it's almost like a shock cushion, right? It can't, it doesn't take actually any impact from the outside. And, um, I think what's also so frustrating is the state house does very little is the also other piece of it is that, um, they like the t- number of times they go into the building to vote is, is very far, few and far in between. So it's a building that in order to sort of, again, avoid a sort of public pressure or accountability or voice, right? An agency, nothing happens for months. I mean, I'm not exaggerating that, that that's like literally months, and then suddenly everything happens in ten, you know, ten hours or twelve hours or twenty-four hours. And, you know, all the reps have to rush in, and the the news doesn't isn't able to cover that. It's, it happens so quickly, and it's really after the fact that we find out that a vote happened, right? So there's literally it's it's designed in so many ways to keep people's voices out and avoid public engagement
0: there's two rooms in the state house that are state Mm -hmm. house media rooms. And in the rooms are people who seem to be there, you know, all day, every day, or maybe they have Mm -hmm. shifts, but they're ready to cover the news. And we found it so interesting that um, it points to modern news being very choreographed. Mm -hmm. So there's a decision about what the story of the day will be perhaps rather than covering what happens to happen. So red cloaks are usually unannounced for assorted reasons. And Mm -hmm. when we're there, we have had someone from the state news house cover us but we've yeah. also had people come by and say you know I'll take your picture but I don't know if I'll be allowed to do the story or not which is very interesting and yeah nothing personal totally understand it but the fact that It's open every day, so you can go any day and you visit or protest or try to see your legislators, but that what is happening isn't really covered by most media channels. No.
1: Yeah. And I mean, the fact of the matter is, too, I mean, not even just media channels. I mean, rank and file state reps don't know what's going on. That's the reality of it. And it's interesting because with the COVID-19 crisis, there's sort of like different levels of like, you know, seniority, so to speak, or hierarchy within the state legislature, which is, you know, in the state house, it's 160 reps and you have like the leadership right house leadership who largely make all the decisions and like you know it's interesting to point out those two rooms because there's a third room where all the decisions are made and that's the leo's office um and they're done behind closed doors right we are not allowed in in fact most reps aren't even allowed in right these elected officials are not allowed in and i mean of course not journalists or advocates or or activists for that matter you know there's sort of like these different layers right and there's like the house leadership and then there's you know the sort of like i call it the periphery leadership um they've been sort of I mean, to be very explicit and blunt, um, they don't really have a say in the decision-making process. I think they've been convinced that they have a say, Um, but the reality is that they don't. Um, And actually with this COVID-19 crisis, the fact that, you know, it's more challenging for them to coordinate, you know, 160 people over Zoom and over, you know, online. They've sort of like, there's this been like, outrage among that second layer right of like why isn't my voice being heard it's like well your voice never mattered to begin with let's be real and then you have the rank and file state reps who are below that and they you know they don't have any information or knowledge I mean it is a frustration that was I remember there was a number of speeches at the beginning of the session we have you know they vote on rules at the very beginning in January and you know a lot of state reps said I can't I have nothing to tell my constituents I literally don't know what to tell them because we don't know what's going on And that's sort of the reality of it. In addition to like, I mean, just journalists. I mean, these are like elected officials who should have some say, right, in in how our government works.
0: So Erica, you said that you vote on rules. So every time Mm -hmm. you start something, there are new rules. There are not a book of rules, a set of rules that work every time.
1: No, they vote on it every January. So the beginning, so there's a two-year session. At the beginning of the session, they will vote on those rules. We organize this thing called the Voters Deserve to Know Pledge. Um, and it's a very simple pledge. It literally asks reps, tell us how you vote. That's it. It's really that. It's that simple, right? Because if you think about it, right, when we were, you were testifying to the committee in the judiciary, you know, we, it's reasonable to ask them, well, then, if you vote on the Roe Act in your committee, tell me how you voted you know how you voted, each rep knows how they voted, they don't know how other reps voted, but that's, that's a fact too. Um, but the chair knows how everyone voted and individual reps in that committee know. So we said, all right, we'll sign a pledge to telling us that you will tell us how you vote in every committee vote. Particularly the important ones are really important. Um, and then the other piece too was that we wanted them to stand for a recorded vote. because we need a certain number of reps to get a recorded vote on the floor. Um, and we, you know, so that's, that's another piece, too, that we're like, if you co-sponsor this bill, if you think the Roe Act is so important and you think that it's worth co-sponsoring because people push you to, make that co-sponsorship mean something. Because right now it means nothing. It's literally they push a button on a computer screen. Um, and so I think that that's, that's a piece, right, um, you know, in terms of, like, pushing for transparency is this pledge. And, and I'm really proud to say, I mean, Linda, you're, um, you, you know, from Individual Act, and, you know, your rep, uh, Tammy gouvea has signed that pledge. Um, and she is among one of uh, 13 reps who have done that out of 160. But it's um, it's interesting because, you know, we've had we've organized groups to go talk to the reps to be like, why won't you tell us how you vote? And some of the most effective groups that have gone to the rep asking them are school committee members and town meeting members. Right. Because they're like, this is ridiculous. I have to follow Robert's rules. It's so annoying. And it's it's there for a reason. It's annoying, but it's there for you know public accountability. Um, why aren't you held to the same standard I'm held to? Because it's a lot of work to be a school committee member, a town meeting member, you know, a city councilor, and they don't really have a good pushback for that. There's all these different ways they sort of explain their ways out of, you know, not telling you how they vote. But that one's a tough one to argue with. So that's, I just wanted to highlight that.
0: In local cities and towns, you have a one year. Things aren't open for 18, it's an 18 month season or a two year season. Yeah. So I think for activists and people who are not activists, but care about a particular issue, row, Act, or any other issue, it's important to understand that your local process is not the same as the mm-hmm. state process. Yeah. So you are going to have to stay at it for a long time. It's not like show up at one or two meetings, and then you'll get a vote. Would they extend the July 31st deadline?
1: I think they kind of have to because they haven't voted on the budget. I mean, this is like, I mean, this is I think the biggest, no, there's a lot of things wrong, but like it's <laughs> one of the big things wrong. So municipalities are in a really tough position right now, because, you know, I'll just give Somerville as an example, but I don't think it's unusual. This is probably the case with many municipalities. I mean, we're facing a 15 to 20% poll in our budget, just from the COVID-19, you know, economic fallout. And you know, yes, we're going to get some funding from the CARES Act. But the state government needs to step up too, to ensure that um, municipalities get that funding. The municipality funding is largely comes from property taxes, right? And this would be Insane to raise property taxes fifteen to twenty percent in the midst of a global pandemic, people cannot suddenly absorb that. But the state government does have a much wider mandate. You know the fact that they haven't passed a budget is leaving every municipality in Massachusetts hanging on the edge wondering what's going to happen? I mean, what, what are we going to do? Do we lay off 20% of our, our municipal staff? I mean, that would be incredibly detrimental, right? Do we lay? I mean, that is why some school districts have sent pink slips to hundreds of educators, because they just don't know what's going to happen. So that level of uncertainty that the state house has left um, municipalities in, and the, the fact that they've punted voting on the budget. And I'll also mention too, the budget should have been voted on April. Right. And so, okay, fine. They took some extra month or two to get the rules together, but they haven't met about the budget yet. Um, and I also mentioned too, even before COVID, right, Massachusetts was one of the last states to pass a budget. Um, what that meant that if you were a student at UMass, you didn't know what your tuition was until like mid-August. I mean, it was really, I mean, the, the irresponsibility of, of how our state government conducts itself. And then the fact that, you know, right now, I mean, we are, what is it, July 9th? I mean, they can't pass a budget in 20 days. This is, I mean, they're really running out of the clock. Um, and let alone, I mean, every other bill, right? I mean, because the, the governor can essentially kick the can down the road if they don't put it in front of his desk by, you know, a week before or two weeks before um, the July 31st end. Bills like the Roe Act which deserves a vote, right? It, I, I believe it is a big enough bill that I don't care what happens in committee, they ought to vote on it in the floor. I wanna know who, where each rep stands on it because it is such a basic bill. It is such a simple, I mean, it's it's basic in a sense of a basic human right, right? Um, this is not something that we are debating right now. Women's right to choose is not up for debate in Massachusetts, this is something vote on it and let's see where you all stand because are you with you know are you with women's right to choose or are you not that's it's simple as that um and i'm you know the fact that it has so many co-sponsors and it's not getting a vote i mean that's also just outrageous and so you know my concern is that that's going to happen um is that they're not going to vote on it this session um and my position is you know if i'm so honored to represent somerville that we need to have a vote on it in the spring of next year. We are not waiting another two years. This is outrageous. Because this is the case with every bill. It's not just, you know, Roe Act, it's Safe Communities Act, Healthy Youth Act, um, with any sort of revenue raising, right? Like public education funding. They haven't funded the, the schools that they said they were gonna fund last fall. I mean, there's all these issues that they have not, they've just basically said, we, let's wait and see. And that's completely unacceptable.
0: It definitely has shown me that the co-sponsorship is really important because people could be told, if they're in the state house, don't worry, you can sign as a co-sponsor. You'll look good to your constituents, and we'll just never bring it up for a vote. So it allows legislators to squeak through without being held accountable because they can say, hey, I signed on as co-sponsor. I totally support whatever act this is. And then in reality, never comes up for a vote. Mm isn't that convenient because now they can tell both sides of the story they can tell people oh well i wasn't going to vote yes because i learned about all your concerns and so you you convinced me and i wouldn't have voted yes and they can tell the other people i was totally going to vote yes I co sponsored it so very difficult
1: yeah absolutely it's i mean that's sort of what we've seen play out right because um i'll just take a very quick example of the Healthy Youth Act. It, it's very simple. It it teaches it puts standards in our sex ed um, across our public schools. And it says that, you know, we need to teach consent. And we need to teach LGBTQ affirming, medically accurate sex ed. That's it. It's very, I, I don't, you know, and it's something that like, again, 90% of the Massachusetts electorate, they're polling on it. 90% support teaching consent in sex ed. Okay, so why hasn't it passed? And, you know, again, it's something where I got a ton of co-sponsors. Um, we had so many reps say, of course, I'm a champion of, of you know, of, of, these, of these rights. Um, and yet, it never got a vote. And, and I mean, it's just like, it's really, I mean, absurd. Now, I'll give one more example, too, with the wage theft. That was something that passed with flying colors in the Senate. And they actually have 70% co-sponsorship in the House. So 70% of legislators say, yep, I support this. Hasn't gotten a vote yet. I mean, it's you know, I mean, we have a super majority support like the, the government, you know, if everyone actually was standing by their co-sponsorship, um, they should have, you know, we would have a veto proof majority to send it to Baker's desk. You know, the fact that they're not voting on it is what's really missing. And I think to your point, right, like, you know, just like the, to pull in the both the polling data and like the fact that where the electorate stands on these issues. And when I say things like, you know, the Roe Act to me is not a progressive bill. It is a basic human rights bill. You know, that's an example of how the state legislature is completely disconnected from what the electorate wants, right? And that's where, to me where the degradation of our democracy and the erosion starts with. And so the lack of having that connection and the fact that they can go to their constituents and say, yeah, I co-sponsored it, I did amazing. You can trust me, I'm a climate crisis champion or I'm a women's rights champion. Um, I got the endorsements. And then they never have to actually do their job because the one job of a state legislator is to vote. They're supposed to write laws and vote on them, and they haven't had to vote on any of these critical pieces of legislation.
0: Okay, So bringing back to the Roe Act, um, what can we do as um, constituents, voters, activists, Yeah. To get the Roe Act passed?
1: I think getting co-sponsorship was important. I think that you know, the Roe Act's you know, advocacy work has kind of done its course on that. Um, and the next question is, how do we actually get people to commit to forcing that roll call vote on the floor. Um, Because I think that, you know, to me, the committee process is completely controlled by the speaker. And the speaker is not pro-choice, so just so we know that that's like, you know, there's a preference there and a personal preference at that. Um, And, you know, the fact that I think, you know, for me, this is a system where um, it's not just about one naughty dictator at the top right that's very easy it's sort of a i think it's a a little bit of a white supremacist construct to be like oh we just got to get rid of that one dictator at the top and that's it and then suddenly the system will fall into place but it is a systemic problem across um, every, you know, there are different ways reps are kind of upholding the system. And I think fortunately we have reps who aren't doing that. And I think, you know, uh, again, rep Tammy Goube is one of them. Um, but you know, every other rep, it's like, well, we need to have their commitment that they're going to stand for roll call and vote in favor of the Roe Act in addition to co-sponsoring it. Um, and that we, you know, we've pushed that vote on the floor. They need to hear from their constituents. And I, I've met with many reps to ask that same question, um, but I'm not their constituent. And at the end of the day, um, the voters are their boss. They don't act like it and they should, but we need to change that thinking that the voters are their boss. So I think that that is a really critical thing to remind state reps about that, you know, this is, this is, you know if you're not going to defend, you know, women's rights to choose, we're gonna have to find someone who does. Um, and if you're not gonna commit to that, you know, that's, that's, that's gonna be an issue where we're gonna have to find someone else to do it. Um, And also, i also just say from a very tactical, strategic level, I think people forget, and I just want to share sort of insight from like the inside, right? Um, That is their first order concern all the time, every day. For those two years that they serve, the first order concern they have is, am I going to get reelected, right? So when they hear from 20 constituents, I mean, you better get them Lipitor because they're going to be freaking out because that is is a scary, scary situation for them. I know reps who like religiously check. Has anyone filed to run against me? Is anyone, you know, is there, I, I hear there's this, this like amazing woman of color who moved into my district, what if she runs? Against, I mean, the paranoia that many of them have is real. And I think that like reminding them that, well, that's why we need you to do the right thing. Cause if you're gonna represent us. So I think that's really the key is organizing groups across the state um, and pushing on the reps on an individual level. Cause if we have 16 reps who will stand for roll call to get this vote
0: taken, then the committee process is mute. We just need to get it on the floor. If there were 16 reps who called for... Oh, yeah.
1: But basically the way it works is, you know, not every vote is recorded. And that's actually pretty normal in many legislators, right? Like, if you think about, like, there's some procedural stuff that, like, we don't need to have a recorded vote on. Um, So the way they've sort of made it so it's not a laborious process to record votes is that essentially, um, you know, in most states, most legislatures, you have one, two, maybe five reps who have to stand together and say, I want this vote recorded. This is important enough to us that we want this recorded. And so typically it's a handful of reps that need to just come together and say, Hey, this is important enough for all of us in Massachusetts, that threshold is 16. It is much higher than any other state. And actually during the COVID crisis, the first set of rules, um, they tried to increase that number from 16 to 40 and we were able to block it, but it was, I mean, it was bananas, right? I mean, it really bananas. I mean, the fact that you need 81 for a bill to become a law, you need 40 to record the vote on the record um, is is an end to any semblance of a representative democracy as far as I'm concerned. So how
0: um, do they do that? Is that really important?
1: They, they, their yeah. arguments were efficiency. Okay. We don't want to clog up the process with so many recorded votes. You, you know, okay, like take that argument as you will. It's really uh, bananas for them to say like, yeah, this is efficiency. I mean, Every other legislatures are able to do this with a few handful of reps and they get recorded votes on things they think are important. And right now there is a prohibitive barrier to getting that recorded vote. And that is something I'm organizing around in the fall, to so bring that number down from 16 to 8. It's the fact that we never have to put anyone on the record for anything, right? And this is like, I'll just give an example, like, you know, if you ask me, like, because I spend a lot of time in the State House, you know, who, who is our, uh, you know, pro-choice champion in the State House? Who is actually our pro-choice champion. I can't tell you. I literally can't tell you. I, I know what you know the reps I work with think, but have they had to go vote on it? No, they've not had to vote on it. So I don't know who is with us and who is not with us because the co-sponsorship system doesn't tell us. Um, and everyone says amazing things when they when people ask them, but when it comes down to actually getting a recorded vote, I have no idea, right? And I can tell you what I think they would do, but that's not a real that's not democracy that lack of recorded votes and the fact that there's a big barrier of 16 reps needed to, to get a recorded vote is, is why we have so few of them. And just to give like one very quick example, I'm, um, you know, I, I'm very fortunate my current rep Denise Provo is one of the more progressive reps in the state house, um, along with Tammy, you know, there have, there were last year in 2019 five recorded votes with a, you know, these are votes that had a clear progressive position had a tangible effect on people's lives. So I I say that because I don't count votes that are like, we set up a commission to study this thing. Like, that's not a vote. I'm sorry, you didn't change anyone's life by doing that. Um, And so anyway, there were five recorded votes in 2019, where there was a difference between my rep, Denise Provo, and some of the most progressive reps in Massachusetts, and the most conservative Democrats. There were only five that distinguished those two, right? Um, And I'll just state too that the most conservative Democrat thinks that Black Lives Matter, or said on the record, Black Lives Matter is a terrorist organization. So there's a very big difference, I think, um, between you know <laughs> the most progressive reps and the, you know the least progressive reps.
0: So we really appreciate the time that you spent with us, but really more importantly, the time that you've spent in the state house yeah. observing, understanding, analyzing, and planning for how it could be better, how it yeah. could be different. Um, when is your you have a primary coming up That's and right. it's an open seat? Is that right? That's right. It's an open seat. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, our, our dear uh, rep Denise Provo
1: is not running for re-election. So it's an open seat that I'm in running in. And yes, it is a contested seat. It's on September 1st is the Democratic primary. Where can people find out more about you? Yeah, uh, you can go to my website, which is uh, two words, with electerica.com. So electerica.com. Um, you can also find me on Facebook. If you search elect Erica, um, it'll be there as well as on Twitter at Erica with a number four and rep. And so that's uh, those are kind of the main ways to to learn more. And just remember to vote on September 1st. There will be options for mail-in voting, for absentee voting by mail, and early voting.
0: Great. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. You were very informative. Every time I wanted to ask a question, you would answer before me <laughs> asked the question. So yeah. this was very informative. Thank well, you. very Thank
1: you so much. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it.